All right, it's Sunday again. Yes, another chance to come together and to just to kind of reconstitute the church in some ways, to become more than the sum of our parts. And I feel like it's pretty safe to say that this service this morning will probably be unlike any service that you've experienced at Moncton Wesleyan before. We are sort of cracking the mold, so to speak, in terms of our service order to fit the theme. And the theme for today is the legacy of God's church, the triumphal procession through the ages. Pastor Mike is going to lead us through a somewhat abbreviated journey of the church uh, from just a handful of disciples who actually walked and talked with Jesus some 2,000 years ago to the disciples like you and I who are gathered in this room and in rooms just like it all over the world today. And as part of that, we're going to take a look at the forms of worship that were birthed during these times and kind of help connect the dots to how they fit with their contemporary equivalents today. So we're going to sing some songs that are familiar to us. We're also going to pray some prayers and recite a creed that may or may not be familiar to us. But in all instances, we invite you to engage with this story, the story of God's church. And one of the oldest song texts that the modern church has that is still available and still used in many churches is something that's commonly called the doxology. If you've heard it before, I would invite you to join in with us as we sing it this morning. But if you never have, just use this as a time of reflection, as an opening prayer, so to speak, um, that helps us focus in on the God that was worshipped all those years ago and the God who is worshipped today, our God who is three in one, who is the source of all goodness from where all of our blessings flow. The God who was, who is, and who is to come, world without end. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Well, good morning, Moncton Wesleyan. As uh, Pastor Mark just mentioned, this morning's service is intended to provide us with an opportunity to worship God as we stroll through uh, church history. And so in the next hour, we will see God's amazing faithfulness over the centuries to extend his kingdom through his body, the church. And I'm hoping that this will be a meaningful worship experience for you as we consider our place in this amazing body, the body of Christ. And so let's this morning start with a little bit of a frame of reference, shall we? Some of you who are a little older may remember a Ridley Scott movie from the early 2000s called Gladiator. Gladiator depicts a time at the turn of the second century, depicts a time around 180 AD during a period when the Roman Empire was still very, very powerful. And as the movie depicts, one of the forms of entertainment in ancient Rome was watching gladiators fight each other in large outdoor coliseums. In addition, though, depending on the mood of Rome, another form of entertainment was publicly maiming and killing Christians. Fox's Book of Martyrs catalogs the public, gruesome death of Christians in the early centuries after Christ's resurrection. You see, after the Pentecost story in Acts chapter 2 in our Bibles, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Christians went out into their world and told people about their belief in Jesus Christ and how it had actually changed their lives. Well, this inspired others to believe. And as a result, many people became Christians. And so in an attempt to disable this, Roman authorities would kill Christians. Some of these early Christian martyrs were Ignatius, who was literally torn apart by wild beasts. Polycarp, who was set on fire and burned. Perpetua, a pregnant woman, gored by a wild bull. Now, we might anticipate that people would be turned off by this sort of persecution, but ironically, the faith of these martyrs in the face of brutal persecution, it only spurred the early church on. And Christianity continued to grow and get stronger. And as Christianity grew, it became increasingly apparent that there needed to be a way to systematically defend the Christian faith. See, the early church, they had the Torah, and they had the verbally passed along stories of Jesus. Some were even privileged enough to have read the original apostles' letters. But there was a growing need to learn how to defend the faith. And so, in the second and third century, men whom we now affectionately call church fathers, they began writing down the tenets of the Christian faith so that they could be defended. Tertullian was one of those influential defenders of the faith known as an apologist. He's the one who famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the primary pressure for the early church was persecution from Roman authorities. But it wasn't too long before Christians began facing pressure from 
another source, soon it would be pressure not from the outside, but from the inside. You see, these early Christians, they began to disagree with one another. Who was Jesus? Did he really raise from the dead? Was he really God? What about the Holy Spirit? Which apostolic letters are valid and which aren't? Suddenly, within a few centuries after Jesus had died, the church was faced with the very serious threat of schisms and pressures like Gnosticism, a subversive movement with the flavor of Christianity, but also the flavor of other religions too. It was a period of difficult choices. What was the early church to do? In response, church fathers, they gathered together at what were called councils, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they addressed some of these key issues. They determined, for example, which books made up the Holy Scriptures. They nailed down and introduced concepts like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three is one. One of the creeds that they established was the Nicene Creed at the Council of Nicaea in 381 AD. It was a creed that emphatically declared, this is what we believe. This is what we stand on. And so Moncton Wesleyan, in the very same spirit that led our church fathers to write these words. I'm going to ask us all to stand this morning. Would you stand? And let's read the Nicene Creed as it's posted on our screens. And as Pastor Mark leads us here this morning, I want to challenge you to think about these words and think about the early battles that were fought to preserve our faith. Let's read together, church. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. To remain standing. I'm sure you can see relatively easily how 
those battles for early faith influence not only our current belief, but our songs about those beliefs. Let's sing this fairly familiar creedal song this morning and reiterate once again to ourselves and to the Lord and to the world what it is that we believe.
may be seated. Meetings like the Council of Nicaea, where creeds like the one that we just recited and sang, they were challenging and they were difficult to generate. But essentially, they saved the early church from imploding on itself. God was there. God helped the church through these early growing pains. And through it, our basic Christian beliefs were formed. The Bible, as we know it, was formed, and the church moved forward. But as more and more people accepted this newfound faith in Christianity, some of those internal tensions, they still existed. Who was head of the church? Who makes all of the decisions? There was one group in Rome, in the West, that believed that the universal church, the Catholic church, should be built upon the Apostle Peter, the rock and his successors, the Pope. These were leaders in the West who supported Rome. And generally, they took a rather formulaic, left-brain interpretation of Christianity. Let's get real, they said. Let's figure out who Jesus really was and what he was really saying. Let's not mix words. Let's, let's get to the bottom of things. Well, that worked for Christians in the West, in Rome, but as Christianity spread, other people began to think a little bit differently. There were those with Greek allegiances in the East that says, who says that Western Christianity has the final say? Who says that Rome is the headquarters? What about the mystical? What about the aesthetic? What about the visual part? of Christianity. Early Eastern Christianity began to evolve. We call it Eastern Orthodoxy today, where the emphasis tended to be more right-brained, more mystical. There was an emphasis on icons and relics, and the thought was basically, let's just relax and let's trust and worship God. Are you following this morning? Permit me then to overemphasize just a little bit and generalize. But in the thousand-some year period after Jesus died, that tension between the East and the West, it continues to grow. And by the 11th century, 1054 AD, finally that tension is so great that there's a divorce. The Latin-speaking church in the West, the Roman Catholic Church goes its way with its allegiance to Rome. And the Greek-speaking church in the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church, it goes its way with its allegiance to Greece and what is now Eastern Europe and Russia. Now, in church history, generally, most people tend to divide it into three different periods historically. You've got 0 to 500 AD, referred often as the establishment of Christianity. And you've got a period going from the Reformation, the mid-1500s, up to the present age. Wedged right there in the middle is a 1,000-year period from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. called Medieval Christianity. The Medieval Age, it boasts the introduction of the Renaissance, the establishment of the universities, the writings of Roman mystics, and the development of great monks, 
and monastic movements like Francis of Assisi and the Franciscan Order, and certainly there are some very positive things that come out of this medieval period. But generally speaking, from a church history perspective, this is a period that's perceived as very dark. You see, it's during the medieval age that Western popes in Rome are growing stronger and sadly increasingly wayward. When Jerusalem and the Holy Land is taken by Muslims, the Pope suggests that the Holy Land needs to be reclaimed and recaptured. And so the popes, they make these promises to Christians. They say, you know what, you can have your land. And you can even guide your deceased family members out of purgatory if you want, but here's the catch. You've got to go fight in these crusades against the Muslims. The crusades were eight grassroots military campaigns from 1095 to 1291, all of which are generally viewed in history as utterly horrendous. The Holy Land was not reclaimed. As Christian crusaders travel, they're diverted, and the results are brutal. They're embarrassing. Muslim and Christian women are raped. Villages are pillaged and burned to the ground. People are stolen from. Many are killed, all in the name of God. It's a bizarre detour, and it's an enormous dot block, dark blot on the church. But what the powerful Roman Pope says goes. You see, if you disagree with the Pope, you're excommunicated from the church, and when you're excommunicated from the church, you cannot receive the sacraments, and if that's the case, in the medieval era at least, basically you're a dead person walking. And so you don't buck the system. You pay money for indulgences and taxes to the church so the church can build enormous cathedrals. You can't understand the Bible. It's written in Latin. Only the popes and the priests read it. And so your only hope for the forgiveness of sin is through the purchase of holy relics and indulgences and an allegiance to Rome. Looking back, we can see it as a pervasive, dark time in church history. And yet, we also recognize that God is right there in the middle of history, too. It's in this time of darkness, intense darkness, that the words of Jesus remain just as true as they do today. Um, there is personal and societal darkness characterized during that time which we all experience today and which was experienced during the time that Jesus walked the earth. And he taught his disciples to not pray thinking simply of the kingdom of earth, but to think of the kingdom of heaven. And so the outline that he taught them to pray during these times was to think ahead. And so we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer this morning and look for the kingdom that is coming. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Would you stand with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. By the 1500s, there is a growing dissension in the general population with the wealth and the dishonesty that exists among the Christian clergy and its corrupt religion. People are feeling a responsibility to God, but not necessarily to their Pope. They're hungering, see, for biblical truth. And so there's this massive vacuum for religious reform to explode onto the scene with something different. That historical explosion takes place in the mid-1500s through a man in Germany named Martin Luther. Luther, a German priest, he stands up to the church and he goes to the castle church in Wittenberg and he nails some documents on the doors of the church, now famously called Luther's 95 Theses, a list of 95 indictments of protests against the church. Well, word, as you can imagine, it spreads pretty quickly and people, they really, really jump on board with Luther. And as a result, the Reformation begins to take root. Finally, someone is standing up against the corruption and the waywardness of the church. People aren't saved by their external acts, Luther says. We're saved by Scripture alone, sola scriptura. We're saved by Christ alone, sola Christus. We're saved by grace alone, sola gratia. We're saved by faith alone. Sola Fide. It's a fresh message and it spreads like wildfire all through the common ranks. Followers of Luther are disdainfully called protesters or Protestants of the church. So Luther's a revolutionary, but he's not a systematic theologian. He wants to spread this message of salvation by grace, but he isn't all that interested in systematically writing down what he believes, but John Calvin is. Unquestionably, Calvin is the greatest systematic theologian of the Protestant Reformation. And even as Wesleyans, we owe a great debt of gratitude to John Calvin today. Calvin, very methodically, he catalogs all of the thoughts and all of the ideas of Luther's Christianity, and people really grab onto it. It's around this same time in England, during the mid-1500s, that Henry VIII takes his stand against the Catholic Church. He declares the Church of England will not be controlled by popes any longer. After Henry VIII, his daughter, Queen Elizabeth, she rises to the throne, and intent on finding a middle ground in the Church of England, Elizabeth says, let's try to find a middle way. Let's try to find the best of both worlds. Let's establish a church that everyone can live by, both Catholics and Protestants. Let's try to make everybody happy. It's her revision in the Church of England, of the Church of England called the Anglican Church. What well, all sounds great in theory, 
but it doesn't reduce that religious tension in England. You see, the English people who want to keep loose, that loose allegiance to the Catholic Church, they're upset about the compromises that the Anglican Church has made theologically, and yet those who are bent on getting as far away as possible from the Catholic Church, well, they don't think that the Anglican Church has reformed enough. Some of those angry Anglicans, they take off. They say, we've had enough. We're out of here. Historically, we know them today as the Puritans, the Pilgrims, and the Quakers. But by and large, the majority of the people in England in the mid-1500s and the 1600s, rather than make a real big fuss, they reluctantly accept the middle ground. Anglican Christianity, it may not have the flair of Luther's Christianity, but at least it's better than before the Protestant Reformation, and so people reluctantly, they tolerate it. And so by the 17 and 1800s, the middle class in England, they aren't necessarily opposed to the church, they just don't associate with one, and they find Christianity mostly irrelevant. Friends, this is the context in which John Wesley is born in 1703. John is one of 19 children born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley. After his formative years, Wesley, he goes off to Oxford University in England, and he is ordained as an Anglican priest, and while he's studying there at Oxford, he and his brother Charles, they get together regularly with small accountability groups of fellow students, and they grill each other on issues of godliness. Have you prayed today? Have you read the scriptures? Have you studied the Book of Common Prayer today? Have you sinned? Other Oxford students, they see this disciplined group and they label them Methodists, a derogatory term pinned on Wesley and his friends because of their overemphasis on a methodical way of life. Well, Wesley, he takes this regimented, methodical Anglican faith and he travels to America. He goes to Georgia as a missionary and things don't go well. They don't go well at all. Truthfully, people find Wesley rigid, and after a failed courting relationship with a woman, he is essentially told to leave America, and so he goes home to England very discouraged. But in 1738, this 35-year-old priest, he has a life-changing experience. He describes it as his heart becoming strangely warmed. And church, Wesley becomes a changed, on fire for God Christian. And Charles, he goes on to write many of the hymns of the church that we still have today. And so, Moncton Wesleyan, in respect this morning for our rich Wesleyan heritage and legacy, Pastor Mark and the team, they're going to come and lead us as we sing a portion of one of those Wesley hymns, as well as a contemporized version of these Wesleyan themes. So I'm going to invite us to stand again, and let's worship God as we sing this morning.
a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His
may be seated this morning with Luther-like fire. John and Charles Wesley, they take their newfound faith and they commit their whole lives to serving God in England in the mid-1700s. The Anglicans, they think that John has lost it. And so while he maintains his allegiance to the Church of England, he goes to where the people are. His thinking is, if you're not going to accept me in church, then I'll go where the people live and bring the church to them. I'll go to the mills. I'll go to the factories. I'll hop on my horse and preach anywhere, anytime, because the world is my parish. By the end of Wesley's life, he has said to have traveled over 300,000 kilometers on horseback, preached over 40,000 sermons. Wesley goes to where the people are, and people see something different in him. It's not characteristic of the state religion. It's got life. Wesley says, you know what? You've got to be born again. Wesley calls it new birth. He says, Christianity is more than tradition. You cannot say that you've been baptized when you were four, and that's it. There's got to be a point in your life where you say, I'm a sinner. I've got to come to Jesus. And Wesley says, you've got to have a life of salvation. It's not enough to pray a prayer when you're a child. You've got to have a pattern of living, Wesley says. You've got to have habits of holiness in your life. There's got to be some method there. And he says, with these patterns and with these habits that you've established, you've got to pursue a holy life to a point where it's even possible that your love and your intentions can be perfect. No, never a point of perfection of actions. But if we're really, truly, truly followers of Jesus Christ and we desire to live a holy life, then we should really strive and believe the verse that says we can love God with all of our heart and all of our minds and all of our souls. Well, people in England in the mid-1700s, they're attracted to this sort of Christianity. It's refreshing. It's freeing. It's got substance to it. But where are the people supposed to go to nurture this faith? Note this. It's within the framework of British Anglicanism that Wesley sets up small groups. There are small groups called classes. Classes are for people who are seekers, 12 people max in these gatherings. Some may be drunk, some may be cheating on their wives, some may be just off the street. Wesley says, if you're serious about saving your soul, you can come here. And then there are small groups called bands. Bands are for Christians who want to grow deeper in God through accountability. At the band meetings, you read and you discuss the Bible and you ask pointed accountability questions to one another. For those who want to be leaders, there are small groups called select societies. Wesley says, if you want to become a leader and if you want to develop your gifts, you don't have to go off to Bible college. We're going to do this as lay people. 
Let's empower the lay people, and not just men, women too. Let's empower the church. On another topic, Wesley said this, when it comes to money and giving, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I think those are pretty good words, don't you? You see, for Wesley, giving was a way to express his generosity and his gratitude for God's gift. And so I'm going to pause, and we're going to have the ushers come forward, and we're going to put Wesley's words into practice here by offering to God his tithes and our offerings. Ushers, would you come forward, please? I'm just going to pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we are grateful to be in your presence this morning. I pray, Father, for all of those who are here with hurts, that you would be their comfort. And for those who are here with joy, that you would be the person to receive that joy, God. We think of the Eric Ryder family and the loss of Eric's sister. I pray that you'd be a comfort and a peace to them this morning, God. And as we continue, I pray that your spirit would be among us, Lord. We're thankful for the example that has been set before us in terms of our finances, and we know that it is your desire for us to be cheerful givers. And so through this process this morning, as through all the processes that we engage in, may you shape our hearts to look more like yours. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. By the mid to late 1700s, God uses the Wesleys to prompt a spiritual awakening within British Anglicanism. Things are going great for Wesley in Britain, and yet still in the back of his mind, he remembers his failed attempts in Georgia. And so he decides that he wants to make things right, and so he sends 
missionaries, including Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch, to America, and he tells them, do what I've done here in England. Get on your horse in America and go to where the people are. Connect with Anglican churches and share with them the love of Jesus Christ. And when people get saved, tie them back into our Anglican church classes and bands and societies in America. Well, that works for a while. But after the American Revolution in the 1770s, suddenly in America, there's no Church of England to go to. And so, with much reluctance, in 1784, for the sake of American Christians, Wesley breaks ties with the Church of England, and he officially establishes the Methodist Church in England, later called the Methodist Episcopal Church in America. And friends, this Methodist movement, and it grows exponentially. In 1765, there are three Methodist missionaries in North America. By 1843, less than 80 years later, there are five million Methodists globally, the fastest growing group of Christians to date in history. Masses of people are coming to Jesus through the Methodists. But as the Methodist numbers grow, fundamental decisions have to be made. Are the Methodists going to be the uptown, uptown respectable, respectable denomination with the stained glass windows? Or will they keep the passionate, revivalistic type spirit that inspired the Wesleys before them? Providentially, those Methodists choose to follow the revivalists. Among them, most notably, is a charismatic preacher named Charles Finney. Catch this. Finney studied law before he was a preacher in upstate New York, and he had some fresh ideas about what revival were all about. You see, Wesley was known to do some pretty crazy things. He preached on top of his father's tombstone once, actually. But when it came to the end of sermons, Wesley would pronounce a benediction, and then he'd leave, and he would trust the Holy Spirit to move among the people. That was Wesley. Finney was a lawyer. He said, wait a minute, you can't just trust God to save people, you've got to organize it. You've got to have week-long revival meetings, and you've got to emphasize the crisis of salvation. And so when I'm done preaching, we're going to sing some songs, and you're going to come forward and make your decision. Remember, Finney was a trained lawyer. In Finney's revivals, the two front rows in the church were called the mourner's bench. <laughs> They were reserved seating. They were special seats for the unsaved people. <laughs> and Finney would come down to those front rows. He would speak to those people like a good lawyer does, and he would preach directly to his jury. And then he'd say, okay, now it's decision time. You will now deliberate and make your decision. And so in the mid-1820s, the altar call was introduced for the very first time. Keeping with the times of the early 1800s in America, Finney said, you know what? If we're going to revive this nation, we've got to make some changes. Alcohol, it's got to go. And we can't keep depriving women. And the slave trade, it must stop. 
Well, by the mid-1840s, these issues were not cut and dry, especially slavery. In some areas in America, this issue didn't just split families, it also split churches right down the middle. In 1841, our American Methodist friend Orange Scott said this, quote, I have little hope that the Methodist Episcopal Church will ever be reformed in relation to slavery. There is therefore no alternative but to either submit to things pretty much as they are or secede, end quote. Friends, our history in the Wesleyan Church, it goes particularly back to those tense times in 1843 when several thousand Methodists left the Methodist Episcopal Church in America and formed what they called the Wesleyan Methodist Connection, a group of people passionately against slavery and for the rights of African Americans. The song Amazing Grace, as you probably know, was written by John Newton, a converted Christian who ironically, at a point earlier on in his life, was an English captain of a slave ship. A slave captain who, like the Apostle Paul, had a life-changing experience and became an advocate against slavery. I think it's fitting then for us to continue to engage in worship by reflecting on the very first verse of Amazing Grace and then joining Pastor Mark and the team as we sing together the remaining verses of that song. You can remain seated as we continue to worship. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. 
chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy brings unending same time in history, another small group that breaks away from the Methodist Episcopal Church is a band of Christians who eventually come together in the 1920s to establish what is called the Pilgrim Holiness Church. And so Moncton Wesleyan, to help determine where we are today, picture these two groups, the Wesleyan Methodist Connection and the Pilgrim Holiness Church as two holiness groups growing alongside each other in the mid to late 1800s and early 1900s. At a broader level though, it's also important for us to understand the religious climate in America at the turn of the 20th century. 
See, around the time of the American Civil War in the mid-1800s, there were wealthy families who were strongly opposed to the idea of their children fighting in a brutal war. And so to avoid this, some of these parents sent their kids to universities in Europe, and many of these students, they studied the liberal theological thinking of notable German theologians like Friedrich Schleiermacher and later Adolf von Harnack. And after the Civil War, when these young graduates, they returned home to North America, within a very, very short period of time, their modern theological liberalism, it started to take root here in North America. These were impressionable, and convincing young graduates who said, you know what, let's, let's revise Christianity with the rational sciences. Jesus was a great teacher, but maybe, maybe he wasn't God. And so let's minimize his miracles and let's make Christianity more relevant to the people. Let's have the courage to doubt a little, they said. Well, some Christians in North America, they embrace this message wholeheartedly. Others don't especially after the atrocities of World War I from 1914 to 1918. Those who were opposed to those young theologians, they said, enough of this foolishness about Jesus not being God. Let's get back to the fundamentals. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in original sin. We believe in the errancy of Scripture. We believe in bodily resurrection of Jesus. The world isn't getting better. Look at current events. Jesus foretold what would happen in World War I. You know what? We're in end times. And we would be wise to hold out hope for the imminent return of Jesus. A new word enters Christian theology, the rapture. In direct response to the theological liberalism of the day, dispensationalists like Carl McIntyre and John Nelson Darby and Bob Jones Sr., they stand up and they say, we're not going to take this foolishness any longer. We are fundamentalists. And so in this religious climate in North America in the mid-1900s, with liberal Protestants on one side and fundamental Protestants on the other, our small little band of Methodists were faced with a difficult question. Whose side are we on? It was an awkward question to answer. You see, some didn't want fundamentalism with its mindset that everything had to be black and white, that women had to be silent in the church, that particular clothing defined godliness, that there was only one way to read the book of Revelation, that there was only one way of looking at the creation story, a literal seven days. That didn't sit perfectly well with those folks in the Wesleyan Methodist connection in the Pilgrim Holiness Church. And yet at the same time, these people saw theological liberalism as two out there. It just didn't fit in either camp in the early 1900s. Fortunately, in the 1950s, an influential man named Billy Graham came along. <laughs> Graham provided Christians a compromise between liberalism and fundamentalism. Graham and contemporaries like J.I. Packer 
John Stott, F.F. Bruce, they believed in the virgin birth, but they said, let's not believe everything that our fundamentalist friends say. Let's agree on the agreeables. Let's not split hairs over fundamentals, but let's stand for what we really believe in. Friends, it's within that religious climate in the 1960s, a discussion about merger between the Wesleyan Methodist connection and the Pilgrim Holiness Church took place. They get together and they say, you know what? We stand for what Wesley believed in and we have mostly similar views on things, so, so let's come together. And so in June 1968, in Anderson, Indiana, with the desire to adopt a name that honors Jesus and yet also attaches us to our roots, a merger resulted in what is today called the Wesleyan Church. And so who are we today? Well, today we're a relatively small Methodist denomination. We're made up of about 500,000 believers in 5,800 congregations with ministries in almost 100 nations around the world. And think of it this morning. You are here in this church at Moncton Wesleyan, representing part of that group. Our district, the Atlantic District of the Wesleyan Church is made up of 60 congregations with more than 9,500 people in worship here this morning in Atlantic Canada and in the state of Maine. These 60 congregations in our district are in large part a byproduct of a group of Christians known as the Reformed Baptist Alliance of Canada established in 1888. A group of unique Baptists who favored the holiness position of entire sanctification and who eventually merged with the Wesleyan Methodist Connection in 1966. And this church, Moncton Wesleyan Church, it finds its legacy in those Reformed Baptists and invested pastors like E.W. Tolkien, B.C. Cochrane, who was succeeded in 1973 by a young pastor named L.D. Bucket. <laughs> this man, uh, L.D. Buckingham, he pastored Moncton Wesleyan for 44 years, led this church through major relocation, inspired us to grow, and with the help of many others, including our most recent pastor, Pastor Tim Gupto. Friends, were it not for people, and some of you are here this morning, who invested in this church for many, many years, decades, we wouldn't be here today. Church, are you thankful for the legacy that you are a part of? <laughs> Moncton Wesleyan, that's our legacy, that's our heritage, and may I say, a rich and varied heritage we possess. We are the product of faithful Christians, men and women 
boys and girls down through history who've sought God and yes, sometimes made mistakes and yet God was faithful then and he's faithful today and he will be faithful in the future to carry his church, the bride of Christ. Amen? Amen. Ask us to stand this morning in closing as the worship team comes and let's read together God's word from Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read this together, church. You are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Are you thankful for that truth this morning? I am. I'm thankful. You know, I'm thankful that the truth, the glory of the church is not simply the glory of humanity, but it is the glory of God that shines through humanity. The glory is His this morning, so let's sing about that. Sing blessing, honor, strength, and power. Blessing, honor, strength, and power. Yours alone now and forever. A love this world could never stop. There is no one like our God. Reaching down to touch the broken. Mercy breaking through this moment Faithful is the one who saves Worthy is your name
Amen. When the Israelites were still out wandering around in the desert long before they ever made it to the promised land for even the first time, God spoke to Moses and he said, my people who are called by my name, I want you to place my name upon them. And I want you to say this blessing and identify them by this. And very early on in the history of our church, we grabbed hold of this because we knew that we needed to be called by the name of the living God. We needed to be identified and to have his name placed upon us. So just in, in closing of this service this morning, before we get some further instruction, hear this blessing upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.